Hey, Rod. It's happening. Wim Hof. Wim Hof. Like, is is that David Hasselhoff's cousin? I don't. They might be long lost cousins, but I think they're different countries. Wim's a Wim's a Nordic, I believe. Uh, Wim Hof method, man, doing uh, breathing exercises, cold therapy. It's like this whole physiological reset type deal. It's supposed to help with the nervous system. So Wim Hof ice baths, extremely long breath holding. I think my my record right now is two minutes and two minutes and thirty seconds holding my breath. It's so interesting that you do all of these things and I talk to you every single day and have no idea what the heck's going on. <laughs> I do this one every day. I, I do the breathing before I work out every day. So, like, mm. it, like, supercharges your blood with an influx of oxygen. So, it's, like, somewhat, like, hyperventilating on purpose over just a really long inhale and a really short exhale. So, you're just taking in tons of oxygen, tons of oxygen. And you get, like, a euphoric state, basically, because you're, I'm blood doping with oxygen, bruh. So, then that's why you can hold your breath for a long time because there's more oxygen in the stream. And then when you go to work out, your muscles are really oxygenated. So, you can do more reps. Reps, bro. It's all about the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna try this next week. I am. I want to see how it goes. All right, I'll send you an instructional tutorial on how to, how to do that, it. That would that would be fantastic. I'm curious. Boom. Wim Hof. Wim Hof. Wim Hof. Iceman. All right. Welcome to or welcome back to More in Common. This is our podcast in which we seek to inspire thoughtful and honest conversation that leads to action and positive change. Ultimately, exposing that we have more in common than that, which divides us, even if rooted in differing points of view. Uh, If you're new to us, go check out our website. Even if you're not new, we have all kinds of content out there at moreincommonpod.com. And if you're looking for ways to support, we have merchandise out there. And we actually just fired up a Patreon page so you could become a patron. Um, so check us out. Keith, we just had uh, Phil Hay on not too long ago. Indeed. And what what'd you take away from it? What'd you learn? My biggest learning, the biggest thing that for me, um, and I love your energy today. This is awesome. It's a good way to start start a recording. Bring in, the, bring in that fire, man. For me, it was... It's, it's this idea of sitting with discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's especially when it comes to d- difficult and honest conversations about things. Those emotions that we immediately feel when someone says something that you don't agree with, or maybe it was a talking point from, we'll say, the other side, mm-hmm. that, that just causes you to curl up a little bit. And that idea of, of sitting with that, processing it, evaluating it, rather than reacting to it something i'm trying to get better at in the day-to-day and um it's just it was it was a it was a comment it was a moment especially as it relates to him managing conflict that i really i I, it's just it's sticking with me you know and i want to keep using it it's as i think about it the points in my life where i've grown positively the most or when i came through the most discomfort i was asked last night like what's the biggest inflection point in your life that had like the most positive change or positive effect on you and it was when my parents wouldn't let me quit wrestling in high school and it was very uncomfortable and painful and yet it led to a lot of really positive things for me so that's pretty cool yeah 
So what was your biggest biggest take? I liked the Venn diagram of comedy as I wrote it, as we wrote it down. Uh, the the thing talking about him and um, his life perspectives and his views, and then um, everybody else on the ride along crew. So like Kevin and Ice Cube and Tim Story and like that whole crew and their life experience, and then that that magical place in the middle where the experiences matched up and the comedy was gold. And there were times where they went out side of that and still found some goodness but finding that overlap and i'm just like yeah you know more in common it, it was um it's it's that it, it reminds me a lot of the blog i just wrote about the follow-up to kent and how much we have outside of that overlap but that overlap is rich mm-hmm. and uh it's it's cool and you just got to give it a stuff. chance to breathe like to actually get to know get to know somebody for a second yeah so so today who do we have with us? Alana Aratam. She is a fine art portrait photographer best known for the Golden Age, which is a series of portraits shot with classic Rembrandt-style lighting. Um, the themes in her work revolve around representation and using art as a platform for marginalized voices. She's a New York native, and she grew up in Dallas, and she currently lives down in San Diego, which I'm a huge fan of San Diego personally. So uh, she she's she's bringing some hotness to the world yeah. these days. And it's what what, are we, what do we talk about? We talked about a lot. Yeah, we we talk a lot about that hotness mm-hmm. um, as it relates to her artwork, Golden Age, the Golden Age. Uh, we talk about some past interviews that she's done and some of the content within those, but really around navigating emotions and processing cultural events mm-hmm. that are strongly negative yep. uh, especially in the black black culture accessibility so of art we, or we talk about or accessibility thereof. and representation mm-hmm. and you know well, i caught something pretty deep doing edits on it i caught something i said in i said entomology it's really etymology that i'm etymology because entomology is like uh, insects etymology yeah. no. is uh, words no that's that's good that's a good uh, i thought about doing my edit trick and just editing the word but i was like no nah, i won't yeah, eh, you know, keep it easy. But hey, everybody know Rodney does know etymology and it's not entomology. <laughs> so, well, we appreciate it. It's more common. Uh, enjoy today's episode. We're excited to bring it to you. I started taking these portraits because I wanted to see something reflected back to me the way that I see myself or the way that I see my family members or like my friends and I just don't see them the way that we're being portrayed in the media as these thugs and animals and these criminals and you know there are people like that in every facet of society so why should we harbor and shoulder those labels? I just have to be compassionate and have empathy and understand that this is maybe the first time that some of these people um, get to ask these questions. And if it's a bridge that I get to provide in order for them to uh, be a little more open-minded or to um, be a little less fearful, then by all means. So, so welcome, welcome to the show. We appreciate you having us. We Thanks, appreciate Zach. you joining Thanks for us today. Me. Thank you. Connected through your brother. Thank, thank you to him. So, uh, I heard you in a podcast. You said a lot of stuff. One thing that I'm curious about is your last name. 
Um, and also, I think you said Ivory Coast. Oh. Was that, was that a personal reference or were you just making that up? No, I don't, I actually don't know. My older brother uh, did some DNA for his son oh. and like Ivory Coast came up. So I was like, huh, maybe. Maybe that's where it all goes back to. I have no idea though. Actually. I just like saying Cote d'Ivoire, so I wanted to right? fit it in there. I know, I was um, kind of like, you're French. But, so you don't know. I don't know. But that's something you talked about in the podcast about I the disconnect. Well, no, the disconnect for black Americans mm-hmm. and, and knowing where they're from or where the last name like what the history behind it is. And it's something I'm fascinated with. I mean, I have a Scottish Irish last name, Campbell. And so I like to know entomology and where people's names come mm-hmm. from or regions and understanding how much of the history they know behind it or not. Because um, I think there's something there um, as far as knowing who you are today, like kind of knowing where you came from. But it doesn't mean you can't. Well, my last name is not actually tied into Ivory Coast or anywhere in Africa. It's uh, Malaysian. Malaysian. Actually. Yeah. There so it's. It's a, Ayer Hitam is actually a town in Malaysia just north of Singapore. It's where my grandfather's from. Ayer, I believe, is uh, water and Hitam is black, or maybe it's the other way around, but it's it, the name of the town is basically black water. Yeah. So um, I'm a mercenary, really, is what's going on here. Uh, so that's fa- f- Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my father is half Malaysian, and uh, my grandfather came over to New York uh, from Malaysia. I don't remember when, um, but in classic American fashion, you know, the, he comes over with uh, his real last name, and they're like, "Oh, we'll we're change not going to recognize that. Let's just slap on your city as your town is your last name," and that's right. how we got that. So if you meet any more Aratams, we're pretty much the only ones. Hmm. We're all related. Good old Ellis cool. Island. You know what the original last name is? Um, it is. It's Malaysian, but it's a. It's the name of a town in Malaysia. Is that what you're asking? No. So you said we just slapped. Oh, the unedited. Maybe I misunderstood. Oh, oh, the original last the original name. The original last name. Right. Yeah. So um, my grandfather was Malaysian, and uh, so therefore Muslim. Okay. And they take. I think in a lot of cultures they do this where they take like the father's first name and attach yeah. it to the last name. So it's like son of. Right, yeah. So it was, uh, uh, he also went to Mecca. So hang on a second, let me think about this. It was like Bin Haji Taib, I believe. Bin Haji Taib. Now, did, did he bring the faith with him when he came to New York? You know, I, I think that he did, but it he wasn't really strict on it because he never really forced my father and his siblings to uh, follow that path, which was cool. Like my dad kind of um, did his own thing. And I remember growing up, like my mother's side of the family was Catholic and I just could not understand why we had to get up at the crack of dawn and go to church while my dad laid in bed. I was like, I want to be like this guy. Oh. That's like a way cooler <laughs> he situation. <laughs> Plus he's, the whole he's Catholic He's got it made thing. right now. Yeah, he's got it made. And the Catholic thing just really tripped me out, you right. know, as a kid. The, the uh, uh, drinking the wine and eating the 
little blood wafer things. And I really took that literally as a seven-year-old, like the drinking blood and eating yeah. bodies. And I was like, mm. As do they. There's <laughs> been there's been a lot of arguments and maybe even wars over that one. Mm -hmm. Did um, your So your grandfather came over. Did he come over with your dad or was your dad first generation? First generation. Okay. Mm -hmm. How old was your grand granddad when he came over? I don't know. Hmm. But I believe he worked on the railroad and ended up with emphysema from oh. all the toxins and smoke and whatnots mm. that he was inhaling. So uh, I, I don't know what age he came over at. This mm. is information I should probably eh. ask. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions about my family, so. I only know, outside of the U.S., I, I only have um, like a great-grandma that, that grew up in London, somehow went to Canada, went to the islands and then came here but that's the only that's all information i have that's right uh, uh, yeah everybody else all i know is bama yeah so did you grow up in new york i did partially um Ooh. whereabouts was there till around like 10 ish uh was born in queens flushing to be exact which is the, the most unfortunate name for any place um <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's quite possibly a metaphor for yeah. my life. But uh, yeah, Flushing and then moved to uh, Long Island before my family decided to gather us all up and move to Texas. Mm. At 10. I miss Texas. Oh, I miss Texas. Like, yeah, crazy. I miss Texas. Where in Texas? Uh, moved to a town called Grand Prairie. And... Uh, Hated it. What's that near? I actually hated it. Uh, it's it's like in the mid cities between Fort Worth and Dallas. So okay. there's like suburbs between those two bigger mm -hmm. cities, and uh, we managed to circulate within those those little towns. So it was uh, Grand Prairie, and then um, Arlington, and I went to high school in Mansfield, and then uh, left there and went to move to Plano and sort of like the North Dallas area, which is sort of where the rest of my family resides now and uh yeah like I never really I, I always had New York in my blood you know and and I studied ballet for uh much of my growing up my adolescent years and so with my father working for American Airlines I'd go back to New York for the summers every summer um, so I spent a lot of time in New York and it really felt like that was my home to me so Texas never really, I never really gelled with it. I understand the the sentiment um, for sure. I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire and I still don't feel like I identify with New Hampshire. Um, I've lived in Ohio for a year and a half and I feel like I identify more with Ohio. Mm -hmm. I'm curious from your perspective, like wh why is that? Is it anything specific? Is it just because you, I mean, they're, you know, at a at a macro level, pretty pretty different places, especially yeah. Manhattan um, versus, or you know, the boroughs versus the entire state of Texas, maybe minus Austin. <laughs> like, so, did have you been able to pinpoint it? How long were you in Texas? I was in Texas from ten, and I think I managed to escape in my early twenties. Okay, uh, when I came out here to Southern California. Um, but I, I think I think it wasn't working out for me because it was just I, I felt like I was pulled out just at a 
point when you're you're making friends and you're starting to uh, you know have some independence as a kid you know and mm-hmm. identity like you're starting to figure out who you are and um, and then we left and moved to Texas and I had a lot of diversity where we were living in New York mm-hmm. like I remember the schools that we were in was very very diverse and I had friends from all over the place and then Texas was very much not like that so I, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere I spent like uh, the majority of my growing up trying to figure out where I fit in mm-hmm. and um, and I think it was also a hard time because you know like when you're in high school everything's very clicky so you either find your tribe or you you don't and I ended up being one of those floaters that would just sort of dip in and out of different cliques um, yeah so never really felt like I could never really anchored yeah in anything yeah. there mm-hmm. now when you say diversity I always like we always like to ask the question what do you mean by you had a lot of diversity in in New York well we had lots of family friends you know when you uh, um, have close friends to the family you call them aunties and stuff like oh, that so yeah, I had yeah. lots of aunties and cousins and you know just friends of the family mm-hmm. and and within that there were lots of um, girls and boys and I have three brothers so it was really nice to have like girls around me that were my age that mm-hmm. were sort of like cousins or you know uh, close friends and so I had them and then um, back then you could go out and play until the sun went down mm-hmm. and so you know we'd go out in the neighborhood and there were just people from kids from all backgrounds you know all sorts of backgrounds all ethnicities all races uh, different religions um, genders like it just felt very diverse in that okay. way and um, and that made sense to me I mean we just grew up in a very diverse I mean obviously with my father being of uh, mixed race and then we had like friends of the family that were from Panama and all these different places. Like it just felt normal to me. And then going to Texas, it just was not like that. Perfect example when we, um, you know, we moved to Texas and my father finally had an opportunity to purchase a house, which is something that is unheard of living in New York. Mm-hmm. And with four kids, especially, so you know, it was great for them to be able to to be able to do this and provide that kind of a life for us. But uh, rolling into Grand Prairie on the day that we decide to move in, there was a KKK rally on the side of the road. For yeah, real? Like this is like yes. the day and you moved. Yes, like we're driving into town. I'm like, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, my dad's flipping him off from the window, and I'm like, this is nuts. Yeah. Like, I don't want to live here. Saw cows, cows on the right side, KKK on the left side. I was like, this is not my town. We we had a, uh, uh, in I grew up in Indianapolis, so it was my my experience is more like reverse here, starting from less diverse, going to more. But we had an annual. It was scheduled. We had an annual KKK rally. It's like, all right, not going downtown on May 30th, like. It was just... Yeah, it's a trip. How were you received in that community then as a whole when you moved? I mean, at 10, maybe, I I don't know what your perspective was, but I'm curious. You know, I don't don't know if I was cognizant of that at 10 years old. I just knew that 
um, things were very different for me. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the only cow that I had seen at that point was this plastic one that sat on top of the dairy store gals that we used to go to to buy ice cream. So now they're like living things roaming around <laughs> fields. And I'm like, this is crazy. Um, <laughs> and so I, I was aware of the differences from like those types of perspectives or like, it was just really quiet. Huh, we yeah. didn't have the hustle and bustle of sure. the city outside the window. All, all of a sudden, it was just super, super quiet. And that was weird to yeah. me. So I was more aware of that kind of stuff than I was uh, around like how I was being treated or what people thought about me. I don't think that I was really a- aware of that. How did your parents treat it? Like with, you know, four kids. It's pretty intense intense drive-in for for dad i imagine right um yeah so how did they treat it with with the kids and and how were you raised around that type of ecosystem i think that they were i i can only imagine honestly i haven't really spoken to them about this but i could imagine that they were happy to be able to have us an environment where we'd have like a good school to go to Mm. And, um, you know, didn't have to worry about the, you know, city stuff, having your kids being raised in the city, which brings its own level of insecurities and issues, Mm -hmm, you know, so now you have this suburban environment and you have an actual home and everybody gets their own room. So I think it was probably very mixed for them, you know, to have to give up certain things in order to give us certain things. And I think that it was probably quite the compromise, but I'm, I think overall they're really happy. I mean, we're, we all came out pretty well adjusted and you know, my brothers all are married with kids. <laughs> my parents were like, I was going to say that's arguable. You, the brother we know, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Except for that one. He's, yeah. Yeah. he's, <laughs> he's trouble. <laughs> he's, he's okay. He's okay. <laughs> but the other ones turned out pretty well. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that they look back on the experience now and probably felt like they definitely did the right thing. Yeah. And, and, it, and it seems to me like, and this is just in our limited interaction, that that experience, they didn't necessarily insulate you from that hate that's obviously around you, but they also didn't create it so you were afraid of it. Am I, am yeah. I mischaracterizing you, that? No, I think you're right. I think that they they spoke to us a lot about that, but mostly from a perspective of like um, remember who you are mm-hmm. and you are strong and you're valid and you're worthy and all that kind of stuff. You know, so we definitely received those messages. Um, I think that they were being really trying to be as realistic with us as possible, like preparing us for the world. Like there's shit out there. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to deal with it. So let me equip you with, you know, the best that we, way that we can in order for you to be able to go out there and, you know, maintain. So cool. So in your interview with the San Diego Tribune, you um, talk about because today, uh, you know, for our audience's purposes, you're an artist, you're, you're a photographer, you're very well known, uh, especially in that in the Southern California area, you're being profiled a lot. Um, and you also say that your dad was your creative inspiration. Mm. 
what was that like how was your dad your creative inspiration what does that what does that mean uh so my dad my dad was a frustrated artist um Mm. he he's a really really amazing artist and um what kind of artist if i can interrupt he did a lot of uh like cartoons and I remember he uh, had his own sort of comic book and coloring book and things like that that he would make out of the characters that he came up with and um, you know he had his room with his drafting table and all of his supplies and stuff and I would just sit there and watch him and you know he was really good at it but I, I feel like maybe he felt like he couldn't do that and do the nine to five, which I, I, I totally understand because it's, it's hard to do both. Mm-hmm. It really is. And, you know, he sacrificed in some ways his art to give us the things that, that we needed, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, is that why he was frustrated? Do you think? I think so. I think he wanted to do more with his art, but you know, when you have to weigh and balance putting food on the table, I, I, I just have a lot of appreciation for for what he has done, you know, and, and giving us the ability to go to school and to eat and put a roof over our head and, you know, do those types of things. And I know what it's like to feel pulled to create, but you pulled in another way to uh, pay your bills. That's, that's do you, hard. Do you think seeing him as as that as sh- is that? I mean, I guess that's how it's shaped you, or it, uh, how it's become your inspiration. Then, sort of. Sort. I mean, I I really, really, really try to emphasize this with people because it's uh, if it wasn't for my dad, I don't know how I would have really been exposed to art and um, one of the things that I would like to do uh, sort of like bigger goals moving forward is the ability to provide a platform and a uh, way for people to have exposure to art and um, get the resources that they need to create because we need to hear all sorts of voices from all over the place for us it just becomes very monocentric and if we're only hearing one story then it's kind of the world that we're currently living in so it's important that we hear stories and voices from all types of people from all types of places and I didn't have the ability to go to art school and I know that there are plenty of other people out there that don't have the money or the resources to be able to do that so we're in a sense missing out on a large are you saying that this is all like god-given like this is just you didn't you didn't go learn this you just figured this out yeah wow That's amazing. Yeah. Are you familiar with Titus Kafur? Yeah. I'm probably going to mess up his last name. Yeah. Because have you seen the institute that he created in partnership with like Yale? I don't know. It was a school on the East Coast. Yeah. Well, you know, he's doing something similar to what you guys are doing. And it's basically just uh, opening a door for people to have conversations that they wouldn't necessarily 
have. Yeah. And and I think that it's important to have these conversations. We can't continue to live in our little bubbles and not talk about things just because it's hard, you know. And so Golden Age has been really amazing uh, for me in that way. Like if there's anything that I've really gotten out of it, it's it's the conversations that I've been able to have with people and the um, I've realized that it's a it is it's like a doorway that allows people to feel like a, they have a safe spot to talk about their experiences or to ask questions and it's funny because I get a lot of my black friends saying things like uh, I don't have patience for that or it's not your job to educate people and and hmm. yeah I hear what you're saying and I understand and, and it does get old and, and, yeah. and tiring to have to explain to people why they shouldn't be ignorant and you know to just <laughs> go out there and figure it out for themselves but I created something that um, in some ways I feel I have to be responsible for so I get all sorts of comments and questions from people and I just have to you know be compassionate and have empathy and understand that this is maybe the first time that some of these people um, get to ask these questions mm -hmm. and if it's a bridge that I get to provide in order for them to uh, be a little more open-minded or to um, be a little less fearful then by all means like I wanted to go I want to go a little deeper into the work but a theme I just I just wrote down the word opportunity because you mentioned your dad mm -hmm. exposing you to art and then now you have this idea of creating a platform to help expose other people to art outside of just your work was that always a goal or is that something that's kind of come out of this most recent exposure or I always knew that I wanted to uh figure out a way to make art more accessible and um, and what I mean by accessible or, or providing access is let me back up so when I was a kid you know I was always really into the arts because of my dad and I'd go to museums and I'd go to museums and I, I wouldn't see people that look like me. I wouldn't see people that look like me that work there. I wouldn't see people that look like me that were patrons of these museums and these places. And I certainly did not see people on the walls that look like me. So the message that I continually got was, I don't belong there. That's not my space. And I feel like that keeps a lot of people out, you know? And if they don't have I, if they're not lucky enough to have a father or a mother or somebody in their family or a friend that introduces them to different ways of expressing themselves, then, then you know, oftentimes they don't. It wasn't until hearing you talk about that uh, and or something like that in the other podcast that I realized, like, my mom loves music. She's a teacher. She's been a teacher forever. And took us to museums and all kinds of stuff. My dad took us to science museums. But, like... I hated, I hated art museums. I couldn't, I couldn't stand them, and I didn't, I didn't really know why. But it, I think it's because I didn't feel like I was part of it. Like I, I didn't feel like there was any reason yeah. to be there. Um, and, it, and it's kind of one of those things, especially you know, when we were all kids, the media, and not the, the media, but you know, just mediums of 
digital distribution of, you know, I can go in and, and Google something and probably find something, right? But at that time, you know, white representation is pretty much the norm, right? Yep. And it's just, I mean, I can go anywhere I want and see someone that does something that looks like me and it can be whatever I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in those microcosms of, you know, especially art that's not a mainstream thing um if and you don't have google yet you know Mm -hmm. you don't have bing um you know how to how do you how do you find that representation if someone in your ecosystem isn't there to to bring it to you and right. you know and, and it just perpetuates and you know even now it's still the same I mean it, you have to still know those those things to, to go to and it's just maybe a little bit more accessible and you know someone in in Massachusetts can you know look up your name and now see the artwork that you're doing um, whereas you know back when we were all kids we'd have to fly to san diego to make that happen so mm-hmm. it's awesome and, and on that note now i think we've probably teased it enough like tell the audience about the golden age like wh- what is it what is it that you were trying to do from your words i mean we could explain it but that would be <laughs> that'll be boring <laughs> <laughs> um so golden age is a series of portraits uh photographic portraits um always have a really hard time describing it only because there's just so much in it and I have my own relationship with the work Mm -hmm. say like uh, maybe you would but um, for me it was born out of I kind of call it a an an emotional vomit um, because it really kind of came from a dark place and I was working this really horrible job, super toxic, um, ended up getting sick from it. Oh. And um, yeah, I, I think during that same time, it was like a three year period that I was working at this company and it was just oh, it was horrible. When you say sick, like stress, working too many like, hours and just like, like physically like, sick? Like physically sick, like uh, uh, Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune oh, disease, yeah. which is basically born out of stress. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and really hard to diagnose. Yeah. So I, you know, realized like, okay, well, this job is making me, it's literally trying to kill me killing me me. yeah and um and at the same time there was just all this stuff in the news as is current um around police brutality or um you know just the oppression of black people and there was no time for me to really process this you know ferguson was going on and uh philando castle you know like there was just a lot of stuff happening and it felt like every day i wake up in the morning and rush to get on the highway to go sit in my cubicle and of course there's no time to emote or process any of that stuff at work and then you get back on the highway and you go home by the time you get home at night you gotta cook dinner and shower and get ready for work again the next morning so there's zero time to process things like they're trying to kill us <laughs> can we if just for a sec like there's some parallels to us starting this mm. uh, around the same, around a little later than you. It took us a little longer to like figure out we wanted to do something, but a lot of the same, a lot of similar emotions that we still have our, our day to day grind. But, um, the, the thing like you were like, 
you, there's no time to process at work. That one hit me, hits me very hard every time something happens because outside of a couple of close people at work, um, like I actually find that it seems like people actually avoid me. Yeah. When, when mm-hmm. these events happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking like, in, if I'm in the, I work from home a lot, but if I'm in the office, it's like, all right, they're not taking that path and or like people will avoid calling me or even messaging me on work things. Um, and it, it, there's this iso- feeling of isolation mm-hmm. for me on top of stress from the event that just happened and, you know, like uh, empathy for the families and people that are going through it and like just all this stuff. And then it's, and then it's like, oh, hey, but I still got to get work done. Yeah. And yeah. it is... Uh, it's like, and a lot of times those days end up being garbage days. Like mm-hmm. I can't work. Yeah, I can't. how can you? How can you focus when you just saw that? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's those emotions and that energy has to go somewhere, you know? And um, for a lot, of, a lot of us that are black and we're having to go to our jobs and pretend like there's nothing wrong with the world, let's just keep putting energy into selling your product or your service, you know, it just seems like such a disconnect. And so, you know, I was getting this whole like, oh, she's the angry black woman type vibes at work. And I was like, no, like F this stuff. I'm like, not, I can't do this anymore. Like this is killing me. So I quit. And uh, after I quit, I didn't have anything to go to. I just knew I needed to get out of there. And I had a few months where I was just trying to figure out what to do next. And I knew that uh, going and getting another job that was similar didn't make any sense. Uh, It would just be the same situation with new people that I would have to do it all over again, you know? So I I just picked up the camera because it was sort of the thing that makes me feel better and Golden Age came out. Now this particular company, was it just this, it was just a boiling point of these 20 years where other companies similar um i'm just curious to to get a get a sense of that journey a little bit i i don't think that it was necessarily that much different from any place else i've ever worked i think the difference was that uh there was the external pressures of what we're currently seeing in our social climate you know there was just a lot of that other stuff coming in and not that it wasn't there before but yeah. like you pointed the out volume's like with, the, vo- the volume has gone up the volume has gone up because we have social media where we have access to this stuff all the time and mm. so there's no shutting it off and um it's filtering in and it's filtering in and you're just watching people die and you're mm-hmm. like what do i do with all what do i do with all this information you know there's nowhere there's nowhere to put that and if you it's, can't process it it gets shoved down yeah. and you get sick uh, even though I, I i think social media is partially a complicit but the last 5 years num like the rate of these incidents from school shootings to unarmed black men and men of color and people of color being assaulted, arrested, shot, strangled, uh, like all kinds of things. Like the, the, the occurrence has gone up as well as the ability to broadcast it from a cell phone or 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, like all of the different. Ha- um, has the occurrence gone up? Like, has the rate of incident gone up? Or is it just, I mean, because you got to think, iPhones have only been around since 2008, right? So um, that ability to videotape. No, iPhones have been around longer than that. Uh-uh. iPhone's been around since at least no, seven, first six. First iPhone, yeah, like maybe 2008, 2007. Yeah. Like, but 10, 11 years, right? But phones before that had cameras. I mean, but the but video, the video thing was, You're talking about Facebook came out when we were still in college, but it yeah. became mainstream, what, 2006, 2005? Yeah. The, the ability to stream video over the internet is not that... Um, old of a technology because of the technology necessary to be able to do that. LTE. When you think about yeah, yeah, Facebook absolutely. Live is only, what, a year and a half, two years yeah, old or whatever. Real. So, yeah. um, so prior to this job, were you still seeing incidents, Alana? Like, oh, yeah. and, and able to process it because it was you just weren't seeing as many like what was that process for for you like before that job i mean i think i think it, it's obviously been going on forever it's mm-hmm. not like this is new mm-hmm. what we're experiencing um i agree i think the rate of it has gone up just because we see so much of it and i think that because we see it it gives people it emboldens people to do more mm. and um People, there are a lot of people out there that do things just because they get the publicity for it. You know what I mean? So it's, I think there is more happening, but I think we're seeing it as well. So I think it's both. Um, But yeah, I think prior to that, you'd hear about things. It was just easier to process. You can almost take it as sort of like a one-off type thing, mm-hmm. but I think it's a completely different experience when you wake up to this news and you go to bed with this news on a weekly or nightly basis. And at some point you have to think like, this is not a one-off situation. Like mm-hmm. this is this is a thing, mm-hmm. like this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Now the thing is calling the cops on black people mm-hmm. just because they're- They're surveying a house a or- Starbucks yeah. or surveying a house. Sleeping you know, so, in the community area of the college right, that they live exactly. in. Right, yeah. exactly, right. So how do you leave the house and just kind of go about your daily business and never think once like oh well if I walk into this store is somebody gonna call the cops on me or if I sit down in this restaurant is someone gonna call the cops on me like it's a thing that you think of now yeah so so that leads me to another question just from my perspective for both of you like because I I think you bring up the the point there right it's not like the percentage of people is is less than half that would do this but at the same time the idea of it happening is well i don't know everybody i interact with so could that be a person could that be a person like i don't i don't ever worry about it right um so the question i have for both of you is like what does processing it mean like what does that look like because i mean i've seen it but i guess i've never even asked you that question rodney it's a, that's a question. Uh, uh, you want to go? You want to you take that one? I want to say thank God for meditation. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seriously, though. Um, yes. I don't know. Like, I don't know that I... I don't think I have actually ever really... Pro- like, I don't know... I don't know that I've ever really processed what all of this... Or, like, everything that happens. Or, and I don't know if... I think maybe this podcast for me is a part of the process of, like... 
trying to acknowledge the wrongs and um, find a path to, to the future, like to actually making things right for everybody. And I think that's the only way I can do Because I think if I spend too much time thinking about it, then I end up in this dark place where I'm just like, I hate everything. And, and I'm in fear and all of this stuff. So it's like, I gotta, I gotta go to action. And mm-hmm. I, think this, I think this podcast for me is, is part of my process. Mm-hmm. But it looks like a lot of like fear, confusion, uh, anger, lots of anger. Like what the hell just happened? How could that happen? Uh, how do, okay, let me check myself, make sure that I don't end up in a situation like that. Like um, add it to my checklist of, like you're talking about going into a store. Like I never thought, like talking about parents preparing you. Um, there were a lot of times where my parents said, hey, yeah, like you're a black man, you can't do this. Or, but then there were times where it was just like, you don't go into a store without buying something. Even if you just need to use the bathroom, even if you just need to sit there for a minute, even if you just want to stand there, buy something. But like, we didn't talk about why. And then I see that happen. I'm like, oh, that's why. That's why, yeah. Cause I'm like, man, that would never happen to me. Oh, because that's what my parents said. Yeah. But then the fact that that even exists, like the disparity, cause then I talked to Rachel, my wife, and she's like, I sit in Starbucks all the time. Totally. I use the bathroom in Starbucks all the time totally. without buying something. Why? Totally. She's like, why would you waste money? buying something you don't even like you yeah. you don't even drink coffee anymore yeah. why would you buy something <laughs> yeah it's like Cause i don't want to go to jail because i want to live yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's a crazy thing processing it for me kind of looks like similar um what i have what i've been noticing recently is that uh so Coming up to golden age, I was really angry. I was really angry and, you know, there was just a combination of things going on in my life that made this, like, ragey cocktail. Um, But I was able to process it through art, which makes sense to me. Um, But then after after doing that series, I kind of went into this weird place where I wasn't feeling anything. Hmm. Like I was just numb. Hmm. Um, I was recognizing cognitively, like in my brain, that's a cool thing that's happening to me right now, or that's kind of shitty what's happening out in the world right now, but I wasn't feeling it. Hmm. And um, it wasn't until, so this has been going on for months, and it wasn't until last Friday, I saw the video of the Yale student, the grad student, that that whole thing. Yeah. And I just lost it. Like it was the first time in months that I actually allowed myself to feel. And I just got so angry and I, I just bawled, I was crying. And it was the first time in a while that I sort of allowed myself to feel. And I understood in that moment that that was just the tip of the iceberg for what I was really feeling. Mm. And this whole time I've just been bottling up all this stuff and there's a lot of rage in there. So I need to, uh, it's time to create some new work. (laughs) You think it was like, do you think the bottling up is a defense mechanism? Totally, I mean, where do I just don't know what to do with that. Right. I really don't know what to do with that. I just don't know what to do with all of that negativity. It seems like a lot. You said you yeah. said something earlier that angry you don't want to be the angry black woman and I wrote down angry black man woman mm-hmm. like I 
so frequently, like even my excitement in meetings at work, I so often think about how the tone of my voice comes off because I don't, I can't not, it doesn't matter if I want to or not, I can't afford to be seen as angry black Right. Right. because that's my career. Right, exactly. And I'm the same way. And so I think it was a real fortunate thing for me to be able to leave that world behind and move into my art practice and do that because now I can just be who I am and I can process stuff on my own time and um, express myself the way that I need to express myself and if I'm angry I'll be angry and I really don't care Hmm. what other people think about me anymore and I just had to just get to that point where I just have to reclaim my own power and who I am and have agency over my own being. And if I'm angry, then I'm angry. I have every right to be angry. I have every right and I have a list of reasons why I'm angry. And I think it's okay. So you, so you mentioned in talking about what the golden age actually is, you have a different relationship with it. Um, the golden age has now since been created and you started feeling a sense of numbness. I, you know, the numbness I think is a combination of things. I think the numbness is, uh, partially unprocessed, uh, emotions Mm. that are happening, running underneath the surface. But I think there's also been such an overwhelming response to, uh, this series that and it's like every day I feel like there's a new gift that comes along with this series and so mm. that has been hard to process uh. just like the the magnitude of it or how it's been affecting people and um, it's been really really amazing and I just it's I've never experienced anything like this before so there's a sense of overwhelm on top of all of mm. that and I think it's just kind of like I'm having a little bit of a holy shit moment <laughs> with it all. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not the first series that I've done. I've right. been um, creating work for a while, but uh, I, I've just. I didn't expect for this to go anywhere because it. Uh, I did it for me. Um, I, I started taking these portraits because I wanted to see something reflected back to me the way that I see myself or the way that I see my family members or like my friends and I just don't see them the way that we're being portrayed in the media as these thugs and animals and these criminals and you know there are people like that in every facet of society so why should we harbor and shoulder those labels and it just made me really um kind of like say F you <laughs> to the media or to these stereotypes that persist by creating something that I could say like, no, that's that's true. Like this is real. That stuff's not real. This is real. And um and I needed to do that for me just so that I could feel better about myself. You know, and and yeah. I look at your artwork and what it means to me, it, it it hits me hard. It's like, this is an amazing thing, not because it's what is, but it's what could have been. Because you frame it in a Renaissance way that says, the history of our world has prevented this. And this is what could have been. 
but it is now and please see it that way and like you know, I talk to Rodney all the time and I see a lot of, I see his dad. I see, I have wonderful representation in my ecosystem of what, what, uh, you know, people are of different color. And I, I love that about your work from, from, from my perspective, you know, and being white and, you know, I read it and there are a couple of them in there that just really, really strike an emotional chord. Um, and so I, you know, I, I just wanted to share that, that sentiment and feeling about, about your work and what it does for me. It was important too, that I, um, like the black men that I photographed in the series, like it was really important for me to make sure that they're, again shown the way that I see let's say like my brothers mm-hmm. who are not so uh, superficial in the way that you know black men are usually represented right. and it's it's like here's a label you are a thug here's the trope here's the here, Go, yes. yeah. yeah and so I'm like <laughs> they're human beings and they have you know a range of things going on within them and they're not just like this one sort of mono uh what am i trying to monolithic uh like myopic yeah singular thing that we paint them as right i mean the fact that we have to have this conversation is ridiculous but it was important for me to to show black men with a range of emotion like they can be strong and vulnerable at the same time they can be holding a bouquet of flowers and still have a masculinity about them and has nothing to do with race or gender or anything like that they're just human beings mm-hmm. and I've asked when the work is shown that they be um, that they be hung at eye level because for a lot of people a lot of the collectors that I work with you know, they don't necessarily have a lot of interaction with black people, most especially black men. So I want them to be able to look these men in the eyes. So mm. I printed them at the size that I printed them so that they were, you know, as close to uh, normal life size as possible. And then you're confronted with these people. Like you have to look at them in the face. And it's important for me. That's like a part of the, it's part of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is what has also been able to help open up dialogue with uh, maybe people who wouldn't necessarily talk to me, you know? Um, so it's been good. It's been. Uh, I'll say for me, so when we, when, when we saw the photos the first time, we, we were in Vegas potentially a couple drinks into the night. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, I can yeah. neither confirm, I can neither oh, yeah. confirm we nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this whole idea of a podcast came up. He's like, oh, check this out. And I started looking at the pictures and I was like, really cool. I know a lot about this time frame because I'm kind of obsessed with like, I don't know why, but I'm obsessed with like English royalty and like mm-hmm. that whole period. And I'm like, yeah, eh, this didn't happen. Like <laughs> this wasn't. And then I read it and I was like, this is amazing. And like, I'm sitting there, like I'm in the club, like reading it. I think we're there for somebody's birthday party and I'm oh reading gosh, it. You read that there? Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> I read it all. And then I sent it to my family and I was sending it. And I was like, we have to get her on our podcast. Everybody like find her, like her, do stuff. And uh, yeah, it was just, it's just, it's super cool representation. Like it's, it matters. You know, in, in, in its many forms, like you're saying, like 
it it does matter and it it hit it hit me really hard this year with the the star wars like the last jedi mm-hmm. but i would say a little bit like throughout my life like my mom she's a she's a like she's a bookworm and i love books but like one of my favorite books is lord of the rings and she's always like why are there no black people and i was like mom stop it it's a good book it's a good book you stop talking about my book and then i was like like, but it I is fiction. They could have put like one black like, dude in there, like <laughs> I, um, Donald. Like, like, and then because some people will be like, "Well, historical accuracy," you know, and there really weren't many black people, and it's like, it's not. There's nothing historical. There is a wizard. There are orcs. There is a ring that makes you invisible. Like, this is there can not history. This just takes like, place at a historical time frame. But it, but it's interesting to something that you said before about how there are some people. Well, it's not your job to explain it. They should just know, mm. right? They should just know. And it's and it's funny because that reminds me of a conversation I had quite a few years ago, and we were talking about the use of the N word. And they were like, I just, I don't, you know, and of course, you know, it's a, they, they get to say it. Why can't, why can't we? And, you know, that whole conversation. And I said to him, it's like, well, you know, the thing is, like, I hang out with a lot of black people and most of them don't say it. Like, it's, it's not a they say it. It's <laughs> right. It's a, like, right. It, you're and, listening to music where they specifically yeah, say yeah. it. <laughs> like, and you're hearing a narrative because, you know, I mean, there are 24 hours in a day and you've got your own things to do and you only hear certain things that you hear in the time that you hear it. And if that representation isn't there, you know, it, it's it's hard to change your perspective and and then you have to trust that other people are going yeah. to just do it why right. people are lazy like at the end of the day yeah. i want people the like path water. of least yeah. resistance i'm i'm white i choose to be involved and be aware of these things because it matters and it matters to me but i could just as easily say you know what rod I don't think I want to do this podcast anymore. I uh, just feel like finishing work and going to my living room and watching a bunch of white people on TV because, you know, I can. And just <laughs> completely disregarding anything that's going on in this world that that doesn't, you know, that may impact Rodney. I'm just going to ignore it. And I have that pleasure, that, that privilege. I can do that. Um, and you, you, you know, I, I respect the, your willingness to do it, not to say they're wrong in thinking the way they do. That's their choice. That's their thought. But it's like, you know, who else is going to do it? Cause mm-hmm. they, they may do it on their own, but they may not. And if they we don't, yeah. people will just keep calling the police. Right. Right. And we can't, Keep and we have this history. Like we see what happens when we leave our story up to someone else to to tell. And so, uh, going back to sort of like my bigger vision of being able to create a platform or a, a way for um, people who don't have access to art, they don't have access to going into galleries or museums, maybe they live in an area where they can't get to those places readily, Uh, they just, they don't know that they can go to these places, Um, they don't have access to education, arts education is being pulled out of schools more and more, Um, Mm -hmm. 
so they don't have access to the tools and materials that they need to have a voice, to have a platform. And it, if we don't allow those voices to come through, then basically what we're saying is, you know, art creates culture, so let's create culture with just this one narrow perspective. And we'll allow that section of our culture to tell everybody else's story. And hmm. they're going to tell the story that benefits them best. And that is that everybody else is less than we are the best. And this is the story that we've been getting over and over again. And it's time that we all be involved in what um, culture looks like and, and uh, that the voices from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences are given the microphone and the platform to be able to speak up to say, mm. hey, you know, like, this is my experience, too. Mm. Um, I think that that creates a lot of empathy. It, it, it breaks down these walls and these barriers and um, to empower somebody to take the microphone and say, this is my story. This is what I live on a day to day allows other people to hear that and go, yeah, me, too. You know, and I have a say so in this, and so we just need more of that. You're you're, like, you're striking. You're like this is what this, this is what we this is what we were born out of. Yeah. Like it was it was born out of a disagreement on the Kaepernick protests, and mm -hmm. it's like we need a we we need to create a place where people can have that conversation. And I want to ask you, like you brought up compassion, and then you also brought up um, the idea of of I'll go back. Like what's what's good for you is what's good for me. Like. And, and then you also talked about the rage and the anger that exists. Like, how did you deal with that and get, how did you get to a place where you're trying to promote compassion and mm. um, like, how, how does that, how did that work for you? Uh, so I, I find the whole race thing very tedious and boring actually, because it's so uh, small in comparison to what we really are dealing with here, which is, I really think that the, the, the race issues that we're experiencing, or a lot of the issues that we're experiencing are symptoms of a much deeper uh, issue in our country. And um, these are things that are used to divide us, to keep us fighting amongst ourselves. We're literally going to sit here and fight over the color of our skin, which is the most asinine bullshit, productive, unproductive yeah. stuff ever, because it's, <laughs> it's not like I'm any different than you, Keith, you know, like we're no different. Our skin colors are different because of where our ancestors happened to grow up. But that is it. That is the only mm -hmm. thing that separates or divides us uh, between being people. It's like our, our, mm -hmm. you know, where our ancestors lived. Um, yeah. so this whole race hmm. problem is, um, divisionary and it's like, uh, uh, there as a distraction so that they can take our money and our freedom and, uh, poison our water and a house. So basically, just have control over mm. the population uh, for a few people to have the majority of the control over the population. And so that's what we really, I feel like we really need to be focused on is how can we come together and unify and uh, address the, the bigger issue, the problem that's really persisting here. These things are just like, and I think I explained it in another interview recently where I kind of described it like these are 
things that sort of pustules or boils that happen on your skin when you have a virus. So you continue to put band-aids and like topical ointments on the wounds, but you're not addressing the problem, so it's gonna keep coming up. There are all these things that are just gonna keep coming up until you fix it. And um, so there's no way for me to understand how you're supposed to address that. So for me personally, I was like, I can't fight everything. Like I can't fix the environment and become a vegan and um, address all the feminist issues and put all the Weinsteins in jail and then attack, tackle the race. Like it's literally everything is trying to kill you all the time. So I thought, well, I don't have control over any of this, but I do have control over me and I have control over how I show up in the world and I have control over how I feel about myself. So I'm just going to start there because that just is yeah. what's going to make the most sense to me. And so, yeah, I feel like the more that I work on myself and get myself to a place of self-love um, where I feel good about who I am and how I show up in the world and how I'm contributing, then that breeds compassion mm. and that compassion breeds empathy. And so if we all just take personal responsibility for our lives and how we show up for ourselves and mm. do the things that we know we should be doing in order to have the lives that we want to have to be happy human beings, the rest of the issues I think will just naturally uh, Reside like I think that they'll just uh, uh, take care of themselves. You know, to your point, if we all show up a little bit to say, let's have a little bit more compassion and a little bit more empathy, and realize that hey, just because it's weird to you doesn't mean it's weird. Just because it's different to you doesn't mean it's different. Right? It's just different to you, um, and just accept that it exists. And if we can all come to a a, a point that says, you know what, enough of this nonsense let's a, let's talk about the issues that we disagree on so we can go in a direction but we need a we need a common point right like that common point of of empathy it's, so I, I i love the show up show up it's well hard, though i think just, for people to do that it because can be. it's uh in order to get there i think you have to take ownership over your insecurities right like you can't just show up and be uh, empowered to make these sorts of changes if you don't feel good about who you are. Mm -hmm. um, if you feel like um, you're less than in any way. And so there's a lot of, I just feel like it all, <laughs> it all starts from within. Um, <laughs> but, but it's true though. I mean, I really think that we all really need to stop externalizing so much stop Facebooking, mm -hmm. stop the Instagrams, like just stop and like focus on yourself for a minute and ask yourself the tough questions. Am I living yeah. the life that I want to live? Am I showing up for myself, for my family, for my friends, the people that I love, the way that I know that I could? Um, am I doing these things? Am I healing these past wounds? Am I moving past these fears or am I just giving uh, more power to these fears because I'm too lazy to do the work that I know that I need to do. Like we need to be doing that um, because mm -hmm. fear is ruling the world. And ultimately I feel like there's fear or there's love and you can make decisions in either one of those directions. And we are completely going into the, the, the direction of fear on everything. And 
the reason why that happens is because there's insecurity. There's insecurity over everything, over your money, over your health, over everything. And so we really just need to stop, we need to slow down, and we need to work on ourselves and repair the person that we are inside before we can show up for anybody else. And don't, don't, don't judge others just for the sake of it. And I think it takes people like you creating a leadership position of representation to say, hey, it's there. It can be happy. We just talk about it and it can happen for you. And, you know, one person does it, influences two people. Those two people do it. They influence two people. It takes time. It's hard. It takes patience. It's frustrating. We talked to Lloyd about this, mm-hmm. right? That 25-year journey he's been on to, to break down the school-to-prison pipeline and there are times where it's just frustrating. It's right. It's like I got to, but mm-hmm. he just keeps going, keeps doing the good work because he's impacting kids' lives. And yeah, just, I, I, hey, I, I, I love yeah. your Thank work. You. And yeah, yeah. Um, I have to ask before Rodney, I, I imagine you've got some things, but I was thinking, I was looking at your work and I'm like, you know what would be interesting? portraying white people as slaves uh. <laughs> now massively controversial right but like, I, like, my brain i can honestly like, say my brain has never gone there whoa, whoa, whoa what made yeah. like you, you just thought of that just like right now no yeah like because no i was thinking about this while i was mowing along <laughs> the podcast and like i was emptying a bag of grass and it just hit me i'm like i love the positive representation and I don't like to resort to the negative. But what if there was just a negative representation that said, what if that were you? You know, All right, like I'll play the, we talk I'll play the what if game for a second on this, even though I think it's wild. Oh, there would be massive um, whitewash for I, sure. I think, I think it would be an interesting device to show people the harmful nature of a negative representation. Like, as you talk about it starts from inside, and, it, and I think it does, and I think it's reinforced from outside. And if you're seeing a message, uh, you know, that you're awesome all the time, then it's like, okay, well, pretty awesome, so here we go. Uh, but, I, yeah, like, I think that that would be, I think the institution that you put that in would be bombed, uh, burned, uh, <laughs> sued. Now, um, you couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but, but we talk about representation. You talk about empathy. It's like to to see, you know, black men in a position of wealth is great representation of achievement. And then we talk about you know having to explain to white people the the challenges. And it's like, oh, that's no big deal. Everybody's equal. You know, put a white face in that in that situation in that see, picture we got and see how we got respond. advice no. in, our, in our second podcast um with speaks that we were telling you about mm. and i was like man how do you do all this stuff like how are you successful he's like i have a white business partner so what i think we do here <laughs> is we find a white artist yeah. to do this i mean I, I i it's true like it's a reality it would, that would have to be a fact but we would, i mean i think it would be interesting it would be interesting if a white person would do that <laughs> 
It's not for me, bro. It's not for me. No, no. Hey, I'm not. I'm not gonna disagree with that. that I don't that, have that, that kind of privilege. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I can yeah. get away with it. Yeah. Plus, I. No, that's I just. Fair. I really. You know, if we're if we're starting here, uh, like we're here, right? Yeah. So I don't want to bring people down. Like I don't want to yeah. pull it yeah, backwards. Like, like I'd rather elevate. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, I want to totally. show, and not because I'm just this like happy peppy ultra positive optimistic person I'm, I'm sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not um, but I uh, I just really feel strongly that our potential as human beings are so much greater than where we are right now like why go backwards why why no, focus on um, making people feel like uh, you know how do you like it? How do you like it when yeah. if it hurts, yeah. doesn't it? Doesn't feel good. Like that's not. Yeah. See. That's not yeah. productive at all. I'd rather pull people up and say, like, how do you like yeah. this? How does it feel to be yeah. so beautiful and so powerful and so magnificent? I would rather that. 